<laughs> Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. It's History is Sexy. It is History is Sexy. Shall we tell people what we do on History is Sexy? We answer questions from people about history and try to make it sexy. <laughs> Yay! Shall we tell people who we are for once in our <gasps> goddamn lives? That'll be three episodes in a row. People are like, I'm we're getting, overwhelmed. We're getting so <laughs> professional. <laughs> I am Dr. Emma Southern and I'm a historian. Uh, I am Janina Matthewson and I am not. Really, I'm a writer, so... Well, that's better yeah. than being history. Whatever that means. Sexier, to be honest. Um, people... Yeah, yeah. That's the nice thing about being a writer. It sucks, but everyone thinks it's really cool. Everyone thinks it sounds really sexy. Yeah, but it's not. Um, I mean, it's mostly sitting in your pants and gazing at windows and feeling horrible about yourself. But, yeah, basically. Um, but it sounds good. Um, Historians, it, does. it sounds. I think people think that I just say well, actually, a lot. Like well, actually, maybe that's not right. <laughs> But it also sounds like you know a lot and have spent time in exciting gothic libraries. Uh, I haven't. The university library that I spent most of my time in was built in the 1950s. Oh, that's so disappointing. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I don't um, know why. Like, that's the university library that I spent time in was built in the 1970s, so that's even worse. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was not. I mean, I loved it. Because it was my library, but mm-hmm. it was kind of a shithole. Um, and when they, so it's University of Birmingham to do my PhD, and when they um, red- redid one of the buildings next to the library, they had to drill like a foundation, and uh, that vibrated the library so hard that the roof fell in. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it fell in on the top floor in good old five C, which at the time was my section, um, and for like most of a summer we couldn't get to most of the books i needed oh no uh, good times yeah uh, it's been knocked down now they knocked down that library like last year or the year before that seems like uh, a good call it does not sound like it was a safe building it was not fit for purpose because it was built in the 50s so it had like three plug sockets in the entire building um, oh, that's not which, what you want. In a world. <laughs> no, <laughs> when people have laptops, it's not work at all. Um, I hear the new one's very lovely, but um, still, it feels a bit sad. And that brings us to, uh, I think, a full sweep of places where I have studied that have been knocked down in some sense because <laughs> my primary school and middle school were knocked down and merged into a single school. Uh, my secondary school was so terrible that after like failing special measures so many times it was bulldozed to the ground um my sixth form academy where I did my A-levels was also knocked down um and bulldozed and doesn't exist anymore (laughs) and now the library where I did my undergraduate and my PhD also gone (laughs) I think that that's a pattern I know I think I might be a curse (laughs) yeah uh, no, I mean the university is still standing and like the arts building and stuff is still there, but um, it does begin to feel a bit like I might be a guest <laughs> on educational establishments. I don't know what to say about that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're so uh, cursed. I know. It's not. It's cursed. It's cursed. It's not like not affect me either. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you're burping frogs or anything. No, um, I'm not. You know, mm. you're never gonna find love or anything. It's not so bad. <laughs> Mm. yeah i'm fine with it um all right what are we doing this week janina so we're doing a quick questions episode because our producer oliver is off at another wedding another wedding not not his his own this time time. yeah someone else's um Um, but which is i think even more selfish 
Yeah, but so this means this episode isn't going to be as slickly edited as our usual episodes because I'm going to do it and I am a <laughs> not an expert by any means at doing that and also be I am very busy this week so I'm just going to throw it all together and in the pile. See what happens. See yeah, what happens. Totally. So I'm sorry if any of the sound is shit, uh, but I'll do my best. We'll do our best. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there'll just there'll be no slickness and good sound effects. Yeah. Um, but people will forgive us, I'm sure. Hopefully, we'll just have to be entertaining on our own, right. in our own right and not rely <laughs> Damn on. <it>. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've got some questions. Our first question is. I don't want to be mean about people who've asked us questions, but it's probably my favourite question we've ever asked. And it's from Luke Whiston. He said, I was recently made fun of by a loved one for watching Barry Lyndon. The thing she took me to task about was a character named Barry in the 18th century and proceeded to deliberately misname the film Scott slash Barry from EastEnders, etc. Who was the first recorded Barry? Help me win this. <laughs> I, I can definitely help you win this on two fronts. Yeah. Because, uh, God, it turns out, Janina, that you care a lot about the name Barry. Look, I got uh, very carried away. in general. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing is, and this is not a direct answer to the question, but I feel like it's important to say, as a professional writer of fiction, your loved one can go fuck themselves. Because... <laughs> In my opinion, if you're writing fiction, it's already set in an alternate world because there are characters in it that don't exist in this one. So once you accept that fact, you can just do whatever you want. But the trick is you have to sell it to your readers. Um, and that comes down to, one, your own artistry, and two, their willingness to go with you on whatever ride you take them on. Which brings us to something called the Tiffany problem. Which I really like the Tiffany problem. I love problem. the Tiffany problem. It was the first thing that I thought of when I saw this question. I was like, yes, we get yes. to talk about the Tiffany problem. So good. Uh, uh, the Tiffany problem is a term coined by fantasy writer Joe Walton, um, who is a Canada-based Welsh fantasy writer. Which sounds great in and of itself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, basically, the problem that is Tiffany is summed up by the fact that Tiffany is a name that has existed since the 12th century, but you cannot use it in medieval fiction because no one will buy it. Yep. Um, it is a shortened version of, I think, Thessalina, something like that. Theophania, that's it. Yeah. Um, and so there are plenty of medieval documents with the name Tiffany in them. Yeah. Um, but, but you try cannot writing have... it in a piece of historical fiction and people will not let you. No, because Tiffany invokes ideas of some kind of valley girl. Yeah, uh, cheerleader. Yeah, yeah, like not a, I don't know, medieval princess or whatever people who write medieval fiction write about. Yeah, uh, But there are all sorts of like versions of that as well, not just in words, but in... Uh, sounds and things it's a problem that foley artists run into all the time where um yeah like for example the eagles the cry of an eagle is really shit so when you see an eagle in a film what you're (laughs) hearing is a hawk (laughs) i did not know that i like to think about um so i was listening to a podcast about um historical costuming and how um historical costuming for um, men is almost never accurate because um, they never 
use the amount of frippery like for say Tudor men um, <laughs> that uh, they had ever used and in fact literally before we recorded this I was watching a stupid video game video um, where they were picking it was like deadliest warriors legends um, and they had William Wallace like in trousers because they couldn't have him be in a skirt because a skirt <laughs> looks kind of feminine um, and you never have like proper like massive cod pieces and massive kind of like frills mm-hmm. all over like early modern clothing because it looks feminine to a modern eye um, yeah. and so you can do it with all girls so that's okay but you, they never do it with men yeah and there are all sorts of sound effects as well that like just were what people used in the early days of cinema that are completely unrealistic but we're so used to hearing them in a cinematic concept that we don't accept the real alternative so let's talk about barry yeah so that out of the way that doesn't matter if uh, there was a barry in the 18th century because you can call it whoever you want but we're going to tell you whether or not there was one anyway firstly we're going to say barry linden is based on the thackeray novel which is called the luck of barry linden yeah which was written that was written in the 18th century 1844 i think yeah so I reckon that William Makepeace Thackeray knows whether someone in the 18th century would be called Barry <laughs> yeah. or not, because it was. Admittedly, his name is Redmond Barry, but he changes his name to Barry Lyndon. So, which actually um, seems to be a thing that happened a lot, because I, when I was researching this, found it quite difficult to find information on people who had the first name Barry, because all of the information seemed to be about the surname Barry. But the which two, which is a very common one, which is very common, but the two seem very closely bound up. Um, there are a lot of Barry surnames that have prefixes that normally mean son of, uh, yeah. which implies there was a Barry to start with. And there was a lot of things as happened with the oldest Barry that I could find, who was an actor called Barry Sullivan, who was born in 1828. Um, so he's, I don't think that first recorded Barry. He was just the first one that I could find. Um, but he was the son of, of Mary Barry. So Barry was her maiden name and when her son was born she called him Thomas Barry Sullivan. And then when he became an actor he started to go by Barry as his only name. This gets really interesting because Mary Barry is one of the Cork Barrys who are an old, old family. They are descended from the de Barry family of Wales um, who I just, I, I was not prepared for where this search would take me <laughs> the DeBerry family was founded no one by... ever is <laughs> history is like this <laughs> the DeBerry family of Wales is a family who was founded by a Norman knight called Oddo who yep. adopted the name DeBerry which I guess means of Barry because he was awarded a huge pile of land in reward for his military service and that land included Barry Island which we know because his grandson, Gerald, Gerald of Wales, great name, (laughs) wrote that all down at some point in the 12th century. Later on, further members of the family fought with the Norman invasion of Ireland and were awarded land in Munster as a reward for their service there, which is where the Mm -hmm. Barry family of Cork that led to Mary Barry comes from. So Barry Island, where the de Barry family got their name, is named after a 6th century saint who was buried there. This is a great story as well. He was a disciple of St. Caddick, <laughs> and the two of them were on a journey when St. Caddick realised that his 
his disciple had forgotten to pack his reading material and sent him back to get it. <laughs> so <laughs> I've forgotten my books. Go yeah, home. Exactly. I can't continue this journey until I get my books. Exactly. I'm going to continue. You go back, but <laughs> just be aware that I'll be unhappy this entire time. <laughs> um, and on that journey to get his reading material and bring it back to him, this particular saint drowned in the Bristol Channel and was buried on Barry Island, which was then named for him because his name was Barrick, but he's also known as Barrick or Barry. I don't know when he st- when in history he started being referred to as St. Barry, but there is a Barry that lived in the 16th century That's for you. Um, I feel like it's probably that it was called like Barrick Island and then over a century or so yeah. people just stopped saying the end of it. Yeah, it just m- blurred <laughs> and it, a little it bit. it was like the Debarricks and then it became the Debarries. Um, <laughs> like everyone just stopped saying the, like when you just stop bothering to say the middle uh, syllables of words mm-hmm. like... Worcestershire and things like that. Like, I can't be asked to say all those syllables. I'll just say to be fair, it does have um, too many syllables. <laughs> um, yeah, or like Fanshawe, the world's most irritating surname, <laughs> which is spelt Featherstone Hall uh, and is not pronounced yeah. that. It's pronounced it's Fanshawe. Ri- it makes me it's so ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, so Luke, one doesn't matter because <laughs> it's fiction. this is a piece of fiction and you can do what the fuck you like yeah. uh, as long as you sell it to your audience um and from but as both a historian and a professional writer we agree yeah. um and if anybody ever will actually see you can just tell them to fuck yeah, off from us uh, officially to, fuck off yeah to your loved one and who i'm sure they are lovely uh, have fallen into the trap of the the tiffany problem mm-hmm. um otherwise known as the barry problem from now on yep um and Anyway, it's all based on a 19th century book, so it's fine. It's all fine. Yeah. You win on three fronts, Luke. <laughs> well done. Congratulations. Uh, well done. <laughs> I hope you laid down a hefty bit on that one. Yeah, I hope that he plays this, like, once a day for the next three weeks, <laughs> just every so often. No, no one deserves that kind of punishment. Yeah. <laughs> Please contribute to our listeners. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Well, that seems very fairly comprehensively answered to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just really learned yeah. a lot about the name Barry. Who sure knew there was with. so much to learn about the name Barry? I'll be honest. I learned as much with this next question as well, which I had a great time researching. Which is from a good friend of the podcast, Marika P. And she said, how did people, Romans or more broadly, clean their nethers after relieving themselves before toilet paper was invented? So I would th- feel like we should issue a warning here because this made me clench my buttocks very hard. <laughs> it all sounds desperately uncomfortable, sounds I have to so say. sounds so awful. And I do worry about the nether regions of virtually everyone in history up until like the 19th century. So toilet paper was technically invented in 6th century China, which is fairly obvious given that paper was invented in China. Um, And then started being manufactured in industrial amounts when China became kind of unified. Um, And 14th century China was when they started really pumping out toilet paper but it didn't make it until the west until the mid 19th century and was patented in america this is one Um, of those facts that makes you think why did europeans think they had the right to conquer the world they didn't even know how to clean their butts (laughs) they didn't know how to here was china terrible living in 3018 and europe was just like nah nah 
Uh, we've got much worse things to put <laughs> up there. So some of these I knew. The obvious one um, is the Roman sponge stick, um, which everybody knows about from because it gets mentioned all the time whenever you mention Romans, um, which was literally a kind of sponge or some wet rags on a stick, kind of like a toilet brush. So uh, like they look remarkably similar to a toilet brush and they had a little pot, like the toilet brush pot. It is one of the ones um, that seems like the best idea. Like of, of the list that we're about to go through, sponge sticks is pretty good. I think it would maybe be okay if it was like a personal sponge stick. Like, was it not? Oh, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> No. So there is this thing in Rome where if you were not quite rich, like if you're quite rich and you had your own villa, then um, you would have personal toilets and you can go to the London Museum and you can see someone's personal toilet. Like um, Mm -hmm. in like they're just sort of like a, I don't know, like something you get in camping or something like Mm -hmm. a, a pot a hole in the ground with a bit of wood over it. Um, but if you were poor, um, and you particularly if you lived in um, the blocks of flats that existed in Rome um, and in the cities, and these they were called insulae, and they are literally just like wooden three, four stories um, rooms, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, they're super rickety, they catch fire all the time, and they have nothing inside of them. Like, they don't have kitchens, they don't have bathrooms they have nothing um and so you would sleep in them but you would have to do everything else outside of them um and one of those things was go to the toilet so they would have communal toilets great um and those sponge sticks existed in the communal toilets and so you would give them a rinse in a pot afterwards but um it's a sponge on a stick i thought you'd just have your own and carry it around like a toothbrush no (laughs) that's deeply upsetting (laughs) <laughs> no um it was uh that continued on until like medieval europe you, they've found in like um monasteries and nunneries and things like that uh, so anyway you would have where well, there was a lot of communal living before indoor plumbing was invented um there would be like communal sponge sticks honestly it's a wonder that anybody survived because <laughs> it's fucking disgusting <laughs> And that, I think, I mean, you say that's the nicest one, but I think that's the most disgusting one because it gets passed around. And the idea of that, actually, now that I'm thinking about it in more depth than I've ever thought about it, makes me want to cut my face off. <laughs> it's an awful, disgusting thought. Um, it is. I was just and- thinking that it was the least likely to, like, give you a cut and then lead to an infection or something. Because we've got some yeah sharp objects yeah. in this list. Yeah, because the Greeks would use pottery shards. That is um, bonkers. To just, like, scrape it clean. And oyster shells were very common in, like, 16th, 17th, 18th century England when oysters were, like, um, the food for the poor, basically, because they were so cheap and so abundant mm-hmm. um, that people would eat tons of oysters. Um and then the, you'd have the shells around, so you may as well use them for something. And instead of using them to put in nice soaps in their bathroom or whatever people use them for now, uh, potpourri, <laughs> they would use them to kind of clean their nethers. No, it's deeply upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does seem, I don't know, it does seem dangerous. It does seem like it's going to give you some kind of injury. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose it would leave you reasonably clean. In a kind of scrapey way. Mm. 
Um, and in uh, medieval Japan, uh, they would use kind of flat sticks, which are called chugi. Um, so like wooden, like big lollipop sticks. Like um, uh-huh, I imagine uh-huh. them as being like, a wooden like slightly bigger. Yeah. Well, I imagine it's like, you know, when you go to the doctor and they tongue depress you. Oh, like, yeah. And they have like lollipop sticks that are a bit wider. Yeah. I imagine them as like slightly bigger ones of those. Sure. Um, so that was common. But all of that is reasonably industrial, not industrial, but like uh, urbanized. Mm-hmm. So that's what you use if you don't live in the country. And if you live in the country, then you use leaves and straw uh grass i mean anything that comes to hand that seems not that bad given um, what we talked about earlier i think like i mean yeah a nice I, I was i ended up reading quite a lot about the use of dried corn cobs <laughs> um uh and how apparently they're both so effective and so surprisingly comfortable apparently <laughs> that um a lot when um in particularly in America, when toilet paper started to be introduced, a lot of like rural people were not interested and shunned toilet paper because they preferred using dried corn cobs. Um, I don't want to test that myself. I mean, but I, sure. No. What would yeah. make you happy? Yeah, and obviously in the Middle East, uh, even to this day, then just like your hand and some water, um, and I suspect your hand and some water was the most common one of all like you have to have all of this stuff around like if you were just pooing in a field then probably fine um you can just grab whatever is in the field but if you're not pooing in a field then you're just gonna probably just use some bit of water which is fine if you've got somewhere to thoroughly wash your hands afterwards i guess yeah it's that's where b days come from isn't it you know just um yeah, I'm... all of this was interesting because we've got a question coming up in a few weeks about um, how people um, hand uh, like the history of periods and men dealing with menstruation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, uh, so this was quite interesting research for the These beginnings of that. Questions that make you feel very lucky to live currently, even yeah. though we currently live in a garbage fire. At least we have toilet paper. At least no one is gonna go to the toilet and then give me their poo stick. Um, <laughs> no, we have to stop talking about poo sticks. I can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we can move on to the next question, which is from your partner. From my partner, Jamie Drew. Read the upcoming Assassin's Creed game, which is set during the Peloponnesian War. Were the only female Spartan mm-hmm. soldiers? Uh, and the answer to that is no. <sighs> so. <laughs> Sorry, Jamie. Um, the reason is um, you can the upcoming one you can play either as a woman or a man, which I strongly appreciate. Which is going to be great. I'm very much looking forward to it. And I watched my partner play the previous Assassin's Creed game, and it looked like great fun. Um, so I'm sure that it will be great. But I suspect uh, that the reason that they have chosen a Spartan is that um, it would be marginally more plausible to have a Spartan woman because they were. Well, we have this weird thing with Sparta, which is that they didn't really write about themselves um, because they weren't... I mean, they did write, but not a lot of it survived and they didn't, like, write great big descriptions of themselves, if you know what I mean. And they didn't really participate in drama or anything that we can use to extrapolate what their society might be about. So we, everything we know about them comes from Athenians writing about them. Um, and Athenians thought they were deeply fucking weird uh, <laughs> and entirely fucked up. Um 
uh, except Xenophon, who thought that they were deeply fucking weird in a way that made him love them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mm-hmm. defected. But, it's always um, a fine line. It is a fine line. Um, but they... Um, so the Athenians and quite a lot of the rest of Greece basically dealt with their women by having them ideally be indoors and never seen and never doing anything and mm-hmm. like staying quiet and pale and away. And they like, didn't get a lot of education and absolutely not. Weren't and allowed like the, to roam the streets alone. No. Um, and like the best thing you could be as a woman was that you could somebody could say about you was that they were so good at being a woman that no one knew what you looked like. Uh, <laughs> um but in uh sparta they tended to treat their women they were baby machines and their entire job was creating more ideally male babies but they thought the best way to create good male babies was to have like physically strong fit healthy mm-hmm. um educated women so they let them like do athletics which meant they let them run around naked and stuff um and they let them like have an education and things and they were kind of seen to be slightly masculine therefore by others but they were certainly not engaging in war they were staying at home um the closest thing we have is mm-hmm. a woman called arachidama um who is not classical greek so is not from the period of the Peloponnesian war which is a sixth century bc she is from the third century bc who uh, was a princess when the city of Sparta was being besieged by Pyrrhus of the Pyrrhic victory fame. Um, and basically they were the siege was coming and the kings of Sparta said they should send all the women and children away to Crete for their own safety so they wouldn't have to suffer. Um, and she said, no, we can stay and we can help the defence. And they went, all right. Um, and so they let them dig some trenches and then do some nursing uh, yeah and she gets kind of dragged out as this like badass woman you're like probably don't know could have gone to Crete had a holiday <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah they let them stay and they you know when the battles were happening they were there bringing supplies and yeah. moving bodies and things so um, so that's the place so no but I am glad that they, you can play as a girl yeah so our next question is from friend of the podcast, Jack Fitzgerald. He's at Mr. Fitzgerald on Twitter. He asks, most badass death. That's it. Most badass death, That's question it. mark. Um, I, yes. Um, which is a good question. Yeah, it's one of those things uh, that has hard to qualify. Like People might have different rules for what a badass death, death means. It's true, and it, there are a lot of different, like, is it a cool death, or is it, like, a, a death, like, a great death in battle? I eventually picked three that I like the best, and one of them is because I quite fancy him. <laughs> that is fair. But the first one that I picked, just because it's, like, a wildly weird <laughs> death, and therefore I quite think it's kind of badass, um, is Ronald Opus who people might have heard of because the death is so ridiculous. So he jumped out of a 10th floor floor window uh, attempting to commit suicide, um, unaware that a safety net had been installed just below the 8th floor. So if he had... If he had jumped and fallen, he would have been caught by the safety net and he would have survived. Except by one in a billion coincidence as he was falling past the ninth floor a bullet was shot out of the window 
hitting him <laughs> and killing him instantly. So he landed in the safety net dead from the bullet. Mm-hmm. The bullet was shot by his father, who <laughs> believed that he was threatening his wife with an unloaded gun. It was later found out that he had shot the gun thinking that it was unloaded, but that his son, Ronald Opus, had put the bullet in the gun secretly because he wanted revenge on his mother and he wanted to kill his mother um, because she had cut him off financially. So his plan was that he was he was going to put the bullet in the gun and then the next time his father threatened to kill his wife he would he mm-hmm. the father would shoot his mother and then it he would win basically ronald would inherit everything because the father would go to prison and the mother would be dead um <laughs> except it had been ludicrous murder plan it's a ludicrous agatha christie-esque murder mm-hmm. plan um but he thought that it had not worked because they had apparently been getting along um and so he in despair that his plan had not worked had decided to kill himself instead and so he had thrown himself out of the window believing that his plan had not worked at the exact moment that his plan worked and he as he fell past at that precise moment was shot (laughs) by the bullet that he had placed in the gun Um, and the medical examiner then had to try to establish whether this was murder or suicide or something else. Um, and eventually they ruled that it was a suicide because he had murdered himself by putting the bullet in the gun. That is Cause, ridiculous. Isn't it good? It's so buck wild. <laughs> I love it. Um, it is such... Like, just the fact that the gun was shot at the exact moment that he was falling past the window is good enough. The fact that he was the person who put the bullet in the gun. Yeah. It makes it even better. Yeah, and the fact that he had done that in an attempt to murder someone who was also the reason that he was... It's... Yeah, that's... It's amazing. It's amazing. That's buckwild. Um, I have I have put one here. All of my selections are mainly um, to do with how someone acted in their death. Okay. Uh, Basically, I feel like to qualify as a badass death, you have to have been in some way badass as you died, I guess. So I, I have a, a, a dude called uh, Charondas or Carondas. It's Greek, so it's probably Carondas, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, who had issued a law that made bringing a weapon into the Greek assembly punishable by death. Uh, one day, went out on a hunt, forgot that he had a knife tied to his belt, and when he went... <laughs> Uh, didn't realise until he went to the assembly, at which point, to uphold his own law, he killed himself. Uh, see, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's like, oh, I, I said this was the rule. I must can't, die. Can't make an exception for myself. I, pre- I appreciate that, that dedication to principle. I think we should have more like that. Yeah. Um, so my second one is the one that I found a photo of him and was like, oh my god. <laughs> um, I'll it's a very good photo a picture on twitter because he's amazing his name is chandra shezkar azad um, and he was a uh, indian um freedom fighter during the british raj um in 1930s and he was like one of these the most notorious freedom fighters um in india and he was meeting in a 
park with some others uh, having like a secret meeting and they were betrayed and the British army turned up to uh, to fight them and he single-handedly fought off the uh, British army allowing his co-conspirators to escape and took down three British soldiers um, and then before he was killed himself um, and apparently they were so afraid of him uh, uh, fair enough because he is massive that they continued <laughs> to shoot at him for a further 10 minutes um, just, <laughs> just to be, to be absolutely sure. sure that he was dead um, and then stabbed him a couple of times as well just to make sure and this picture is of an enormous man like his arms are like the size of me um, twirling the most spectacular moustache mm-hmm. um, and then the prettiest eyes I've ever seen yeah it's beautiful. Um, he's a beautiful man yeah, I found a lot of stories like that, like the Viking of some battle at some bridge that I now can't remember the name of, um, but it doesn't really matter who like fought 40 British soldiers until, or Englishmen, until mm-hmm. the, so that the Vikings could recoup themselves and then eventually died after being hit like 900 times or something. But yeah. uh, none of them look as cool as this guy. So, yeah. and that's Chandra the thing, there Shigar are a lot got one they've got to have something else to make them count you do like because another one that comes up a lot was this russian guy who called in an airstrike on himself which is yeah. quite cool but also i saw cool. some pictures of him and he didn't look cool <laughs> uh, so and like, we've got to keep our history sexy and it's very important to me that our history is sexy um and yeah. chandra sugar hazard if you weren't dead i would marry you my next one is George Plantagenet, who was charged with treason by his brother um, and was sentenced to be executed. He was held in the tower for a while. And I don't know. I mean, this was a rumor at the time. I don't know that anyone at the time ever confirmed it, but it's so great that I'm going to live my life uh, <laughs> believing that it's true. So at his request, apparently, he chose his own method of execution, which was being drowned in a barrel of wine. Amazing. Do you think it's you amazing. should drink as much of it as possible? I mean, I would. Just try and slurp it down before he goes. <laughs> well, that's good. I don't know if it's what I would... I would don't think I would choose drowning if I had to choose my own way. But No, drowning does not yeah. sound like a, a pleasant death at all. No, but it's nice. Yeah. yeah. I suppose... I hope he enjoyed himself in those last moments. I hope so too. Um, okay, so my last one is also possibly legendary, but it's legendary enough that I like it. Um, mm-hmm. and that's Sir Henry de Boon, um, who was fighting with the English and English peer at the Battle of Bannockburn against Robert the Bruce. Before the battle really started, he caught Robert the Bruce um, by himself, just kind of pooling about. I'm not really sure. Maybe he'd gone off for, to relieve himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bruce was just around <laughs> um, without, with just by himself with an axe, uh, and de Boon was surrounded by his cavalry, by the heavy cavalry. Um, and so de Boon did what any normal person would do and tried to take out the leader of the opposition and charged him. Mm-hmm. But uh, Robert the Bruce is so cool that he, instead of doing what any of us would do, which is just <laughs> run away very fast, um, he stood his ground, kept his horse there, at the very last second, dodged the lance, got up in his saddle... Uh, and struck de Boon's head off. That is a slick move. 
It is, and a blow so powerful, while standing on a horse, mind you, mm-hmm. uh, that he broke his own weapon um, because he hit the iron helmet. And then he was annoyed that he had broken his favourite axe and went back to battle. Well, that's fair. I'd be annoyed if I broke my favourite axe too. So, as a way of going, I think Sir Henry de Boone, he died trying his best, but being destroyed by one of the greatest warriors of all time. Mm. And that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. My third one is uh, Molière, the playwright who's most famous for Tartuffe, who was on stage in one of his own plays when he suffered a pulmonary hemorrhage, which is bleeding in your lungs. He happened to be playing a hypochondriac in that play, so disguised his real convulsions as part of his performance and continued on to the end of the play. (laughs) His wife, who was also acting in the play... Uh, didn't realise uh, that he was sick until it had ended, at which point he was carried home in the same chair that the character he had been playing had faked his own death on. Uh, and then he had another another hemorrhage and died at home. Also, just as a some salt on the wound, uh, he tried to get a priest to come and uh, witness him sort of rebuking his career as an actor because at that point in France, actors weren't allowed to be buried in consecrated ground. Um, and he ended up, he didn't find someone. Uh, his wife then begged the king, I think, to let him be buried uh, on consecrated ground, but he he only half granted it. He ended up being buried with children who died before they were baptised. Oh. Because apparently actors are inherently evil, I guess. I mean, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've also got this is this is not fit my criteria that I decided for myself, uh, but I've got a special mention for Aeschylus, who was killed by a turtle being dropped on his head by an eagle, presumably because the eagle thought his bald head was a rock, which is how eagles break open turtle shells so yep. they can eat them. That is what Valerius Maximus thought. Um, it's I like, very good. I like this because um, my good friend Pliny the Elder includes it in his Natural History, a.k.a. his entirely barking mad encyclopedia, um, and says that um, Aeschylus was given a prophecy that he would be hit by a falling object and that that would kill him, and so he was staying outside and refusing to go inside. (laughs) Uh, Which definitely isn't true, um, but it's a good story. But as far as anyone is aware, that is genuinely how Aeschylus died. (laughs) (laughs) He's very good. Uh, he fought the Battle of Marathon as well. Uh, yeah. He's a good guy, useless. Don't like... Well, actually, no, his plays are fine. They're not my favourites. Which is going to slag off Aeschylus on a bit. It's fine. I'm sorry. I take it back. Um, okay. And <laughs> next question is from Dr. Fidelius uh, of the Good Beard, Good Baby and Good Dogs and Good Wife. Um, mm-hmm. And he said, if you could visit any point in history, what would you like to see... Uh, this is a tough Golgotha. question because history is not a nice place for women. I mean, no, there's no point in history that's super great. No. Also, um, as we've just discovered, if you go to anywhere in history, you want it to be China post 14th century because <laughs> otherwise you cannot wipe your bum. Yeah. Um, I See, he did not lay out the rules of this. Is it like you're just going for 10 minutes to have a look or are you spirited back yeah. there? Or is it like... Uh, somebody on Twitter said to me like if a portal opened and you could, it was stable and you could like pop back as you wished um, mm-hmm. so and I've decided you have to get back to the portal true well I've decided mm. to read this as like I don't know an hour you get like an hour in a in a place to see it mm-hmm. to just have a look yeah um, and then you're going to get a new 
then you're going to get spirited back. So you're not going to have to worry too much about grossness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or like being oppressed horribly, I guess. Because um, you don't have to live your life there. Um, and which point, like, I would have to say, like, obviously, as a Roman historian, I would pick Rome. But the question mm-hmm. for me is, like, what point of Rome would I choose? Um, yeah. And, like, what question would I want answered? Of which there were, like, millions. <laughs> this is the thing, because it's one of those, those things where there are so many things that are mysteries about history that I want to know what really happened. But how do you choose? Yeah, I think I would... Like, as a spectacle, I would like to see... I would like to see one of Julius Caesar's or Augustus's triumphs. Like, the really big Mm -hmm. ones. Um, Like, not, like, a shit triumph, but, like, one after Actium or after um, Caesar defeated Pompey. Like, a really, really big triumph, like, that was, like, proper massive armies walking through the streets and carrying massive things of gold and prisoners and things um i would like to see that but at the same time i would also like to be there at the moment that claudius died to know whether agrippina killed claudius or not Ooh, i think i would like to see something that has is so long ago that it's become more myth than history yeah like Almost all cultures have a myth of the flood. So I'd be quite keen to see what really went down there. Okay. Like, where did, where did that actually come from? And that's difficult because you can't point to a specific point in history. And it may be coincidence and it may be from something tiny, but like, I want to know. I want to know how we ended up with all these different <laughs> myths that tell essentially the same story. The flood, yeah. Um, you want to go to the, that Indo-European point of the flood? Yeah, which I guess theoretically, if you go from the Christian theory on that, would be Mount Sinai. Yeah. But but maybe not. I love the fact that there are loads of different ones. Like in Australia, Australian indigenous people, their version of it is there was, um, instead of a dove, it's a kookaburra. Ah. That's basically all that's changed. <laughs> she still got the ark. And then in some uh, Native American tribes, it's there was the last man left in his canoe, which had tied to the tops of some trees. To stay safe. Yeah. And then a bird flew to his canoe and turned, transformed into a woman. And the two of them repopulated the earth. Oh. See, these are... Yeah. Like, that is one of those, like, mysteries of global culture. Like, why does this story yeah. come up over and over again? Everywhere. And, I yeah, I want to go to the point that 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 spawned all of these myths. Like, Which is obviously pre pre prehistory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the Ice Age. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think those are both good answers. <laughs> um, I would have to go to Rome, though. Like, I've spent so much of my life with it. I just need yeah, to. Yeah, you're very invested. In, Although, yeah. having said that, with the previous question and this next question, maybe I don't. Mm. <laughs> you definitely don't want to get stuck there. No. So, the next question is from. Uh, Becky, who is at least I like hats on Twitter, and she said, "How did they prevent the spread of disease in Roman baths? Like, if someone came in with a nasty foot fungus, how did they keep that from spreading?" And disgustingly, the answer is that they just didn't. Uh, they saw the baths as 
a place where you sent sick people to heal, like to go. They were real keen on like thermal treatments and like because they're really big into humors. So mm. like heating people up and then cooling them down again, they thought was great cures for anything and everything. Um, that and rubbing gross bits of animal and plant on you. So it was probably people turning up with a foot fungus that was covered in like hairs, brains and nettle and then washing it off in the stagnant <laughs> baths that didn't move. They were also really warm and filled with other people's vileness. Um, I mean, the problem is, is that no one knew at this point how diseases and infections were spread. They did not. They thought that it was humours. Yeah. <laughs> and so, because you were too hot or too cold. Um, there was no no emphasis put on hygiene. No, <laughs> and so they thought that, yeah, you were just... I mean, again, from a modern perspective, when you think about the Roman baths for too long, and the fact that everybody went there every day, um, and that they were obviously, like they're not running water it's like quite a lot of effort to empty one out and fill one back up again um mm-hmm. and particularly the smaller ones were probably utterly rank um mm. and filled with people's horrible foot funguses foot fungi <laughs> foot fungi um and like blisters and other gross things that you have all over you um and then you would nip off to the toilets and use the poo stick and then go home and have a lovely <laughs> dinner. <laughs> Everyone is revolting. Yeah, absolutely disgusting. Um, so it wouldn't stay in Rome for very long, but, <laughs> uh, but it's there. Yeah, the next question from John Freeman is, can you find any examples of man-childs, men-children men in, his, in yeah. history? Uh, and like I'm inclined to say all of them or a lot of them the first a one lot that, of them. that came into my head uh, is Nero um, who is I don't know like the most entitled man child of all time that I can think mm-hmm. of I mean I'm sure there are others um, yeah. I mean the first I thought of was Henry VIII yeah fair yeah but I think uh, being a man child is the result of entitlement and men of history were pretty entitled yeah, um, and it's challenging almost to find a like monarch or particularly a, a monarch who like inherited power, uh, who mm-hmm. wasn't who you couldn't describe as a man child in some way who wasn't just like never no, I want it. Um, I mean, this and... is the entire premise of season three of Blackadder. <laughs> it is the entire premise of season three of Blackadder. And in fact, also season two of Blackadder, except she's a, she's woman, a woman child. Yeah, she is. I reckon that Prince George, George Fourth, was probably a man-child as well. Um, he comes across as an absolute twerp. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so I reckon loads of them. Yeah, just like fucking all of them, mate. I don't know. They're all throwing tanties about not, you know, not being allowed to divorce things. their wife. Yeah, yeah, not being allowed to invade a city. You know. Yeah, Nero rolling around on the floor, not letting people leave his performances, so they pretended <laughs> to die so they could get out. You know, uh, making people hold the Olympic Games on an off year so that he could win all the prizes. I mean, they're all pretty dreadful. I'm now struggling to think of one that I liked. <laughs> this is my fav- legitimately my favourite Jane Austen quote. Is um, It's from Northanger Abbey. 
uh, the lead characters and she never reads history because the men are also good for nothing <laughs> and there are hardly any women it's true well now I feel bad about my career so our next question comes from mission focused um, he said what is the world's oldest continually inhabited city um, he said Rome or Athens but Rome and Athens are actually extremely young um, Europe it's is actually extremely young um all of the oldest cities in the world are uh in the middle east um and turkey and the oldest city in the world is damascus where they have found signs of inhabitation up to 9000 bc and then and damascus obviously is in syria and then uh biblos uh, which is in the levant uh jericho um all of these are about 9,000 years old um, with like fortifications up to 7,000 BC. So yeah, it's all like North Africa and the Middle East is where the oldest cities in the world are. You don't get to, because um, Rome was founded in 753 BC, uh, making it a baby, a baby city. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Athens Depressingly, Damascus is now Syria's biggest city because of the battles in Aleppo. Yeah. So it's like a really grim... Marking um, of an old old city. I think Aleppo is the fifth or sixth oldest continually inhabited city in the world. Uh, it is... Um, I mean, I think don't know if you can really count it as inhabited at this point because it's been so destroyed, mm. but um, it is about 5,000, 5,500 BC um, is its first signs of inhabitation. Uh, and then after that, you're, you move into Egypt um, and you get... Uh, like Luxor in Egypt from about 3000 BC um, mm. and then when you start moving into Europe it's not their baby cities really <laughs> and then you move into Asia um, but yeah Europe and the Americas and things the Americas are difficult because what you count as a continually inhabit- inhabited place like they have really struggled to recognize what is inhabited in particularly south america like because they didn't make it out of concrete and it didn't go up they didn't recognize Mm -hmm. for a very long time until like literally the past 10 years people didn't recognize places as cities or as as inhabited places so you've like just was it this year and late last year the um the radar things where they started finding uh, things in the Amazon jungle that they had never recognised as um, yeah. a- as being man-made uh, because people were going, oh, there, there's cities in there. And them going, <laughs> that's a tree. Um, <laughs> oh, the foolish natives. And they're going, no. But now they finally found a technological way to find that it turns out that what everybody in South America and Central America was saying was true. Yep. So, it turns out European settlers were dicks. Yeah, it turns out they're fucking idiots. Um, which takes us into the next question. <laughs> uh, which is Oliver of this parish, um, who's gone on holiday, left us without an editor and a producer, and then asked us a really difficult question, <laughs> which is... As a species, what single event has set humanity back the most in terms of progress, social, scientific, etc.? Yeah, just a tiny question. <sighs> Barely a thing. Small, um, easy, quick answer. It does not in any way take us into difficult philosophical questions about what <laughs> progress is, what, mm-hmm. whether 
scientific progress and social progress can be compatible, what setting back could mean. How we can tell what would have happened. Yeah, how we can know what was a setback. Um, Yeah. I I went with two in the end, which was the Ice Age, in that it just killed (laughs) so many people. And I figure anything that separates people is probably bad. And then in order to undermine my original point, about what separates people is probably bad. I went with European colonialism, (laughs) uh, which brought the Europeans in contact with everyone who they instantly destroyed. Um, Mm -hmm. And the amount of African and American and Australasian cultures that were entirely eradicated or near enough eradicated because they were unable to recognize anything that wasn't identical to what they liked as being culture or society or technology or art um so they just killed everybody and even without the killing just the complete um a social sidelining of all of those people and refusal refusal to consider that they um might have something to offer in the like in all of social areas in science and in culture just complete refusal to listen to anyone that wasn't themselves uh, yeah. is and then... I think probably also things like you know the the Black Plague probably set us back a bit. A lot of people died. Yeah, but then you see, sort of like out of the Black Death, potentially came. See, this is my my problem with like because like when searching around, a lot of it is like what killed the most people, and I was like, fair enough, but like World but War also II, led to... it led to social progress. So like the Black yeah. Death. Three steps later, you get the peasants' revolt, and then following on from that, much more social equality, and like the, yeah. uh, and then from that, eventually comes like the Enlightenment, and then you don't. World War Two kills many, many millions of people and is horrific, but do you get the sexual revolution and the invention, mm-hmm. like the development of a of universal human rights and the UN? out of it social progress often comes as a result of horrific activities um and like you can't deny that world war ii created some created a lot of technology (laughs) yeah Um, completely i mean wars are one of the places that we make the most medical developments for one thing we have ambulances because of war you know exactly there's nothing i don't think anything sets us back wholly and completely but nothing moves us forward wholly and completely either I think because a lot of things are not necessarily compatible, like in the way that when you're talking about technological process, progress generally happens at the expense of people. Um, mm. Like the Industrial Revolution happened at the expense of people and now global capitalism and the technological advances that we get from that happen at the expense of people in the East. Uh, and in sweatshops Mm -hmm. and so and social progress happens usually as a result of something horrific like something truly horrific has to happen in order to push society into something better uh, or more which i think is basically because humans are really good at being comfortable yeah it takes a lot to push us to to make something better Exactly. Um, so thanks for that question. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible, uh, but thank you. Uh, so basically, I would say 
Um, both everything and nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's my answer. Great. <laughs> All right, a nicer question next. Yeah, this is from Rachel Krishna. Did Aphrodite's blood stain roses red? Uh, this is a nice little bit of mythology. I love a it, bit of mythology. We should do more mythology. We should do more mythology. Um, I always like to think about mythology. So this is referring to the Greek mythological story that um, Aphrodite, who was uh, in love with Adonis um, until Adonis got gored by a bull, uh, which was sent by a jealous, I want to say Hera, but it might not have been Hera. It might have been it's another. always Hera. Um, I don't think it was here. I think it was a male god, but I can't remember off the top of my head. She, uh, as she was running, cut her foot and it bled onto a rose uh, and it stained the blood, the white roses red. And it is kind of basically a gesso story. Uh, like, well, why does the elephant have a long trunk? Why a uh, story, mm-hmm. an etiology for why Aphrodite was always associated with roses. Um, So roses from the very earliest oral uh, and in all versions of Greek myth, um, Aphrodite is associated with roses and lilies um, and uh, anemones. Um, And it is a, a kind of like, why is Aphrodite associated with roses? Also, why are roses sometimes red and sometimes white, I suppose? Yeah, there is another version, which is that after he was gored, um, she held him and her tears mixed with his blood. And as they fell on the floor, anemones grew. And that's where mm. anemones come from. But yeah, so it's a, like a nice, I mean, I felt like... Didn't want to break it to you, Rachel, because you're wonderful, but Aphrodite wasn't real. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. So sorry. Um, I broke this to her on Twitter and she took it okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like, there's a, like, Greek myth is an interesting thing in there, it has all of these, like, various different versions of these stories um, that that seem so odd to us because they seem to be describing such physical real things um and mm. it's like a struggle to get your head around the idea of people believing it and how they believed it and how they interacted yeah. with it and, um, and just like believing in gods that interacted with humans on a face-to-face human level and we're so used to picturing god as a celestial divine distant yeah. Um, that something he's see this is a difference between Greek gods and an a god um, which is that our god is distant and a creator and beyond anything whereas the Greek gods are the Olympians are not like even the best of the gods <laughs> they're <laughs> immortals but they are like they overthrew the titans who were like the even greater gods like there's loads of different types of gods and these are just the ones that are around and they're not really like divine in that like that way in that mysterious unknowable way they're immortal um mm. and they are beyond human but they are not inhuman they are dickheads <laughs> yeah um, and so their behavior is is human and flawed and weird um, and most stories are about how they would just fuck about with humans. Um, yeah. But... Um, <laughs> They're a lot of fun. They are a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I really recommend the um, 
Madeline Miller books, uh, Song of Achilles, and the most recent one, Circe, as like really, really good descriptions of how the gods are, the Greek gods are not not divinities, but are completely flawed and awful, and how you could, mm-hmm. and she does has the best Athene Athena I have ever read. She's just. <laughs> terrifying like wanted to hide under my pillow because she scared the life out of me um, <laughs> and yeah the most recent one is fantastic um it's got the best odysseus i've read as well totally recommend it um but nice. yes yeah. i've never read them so i can't comment they're really good our next question is quite nice too it is from anna scott uh have you talked yet about that soldier who marched over a mountain and came back with a friend? Because even if it's not true, I think about him every day. <laughs> Which is fair, because this is my favourite history fact of all time. And then uh, people try to tell me that it's not true, but I, I have decided from research that it actually is. Um, so what happened is, in 1866, um, the tiny, tiny, tiny country of Liechtenstein sent pretty much their entire army to war um and they sent there's two different versions of the story one says that they sent 80 men and the other one says that they sent 58 men the older sources Mm -hmm. say 58 so we can probably go with that um Mm -hmm. and they sent them to war and then 59 people came back (laughs) um so not only did they not lose a single soldier but they made a friend um and (laughs) Through a lot of digging, um, we found out that he was um, an Austrian military liaison. So they went to fight um, with the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, And so they came back with an Austrian military liaison. um, And according to um, the museum in Vaduz, which is the, I'm going to say capital city, but the entirety of Liechtenstein, um, (laughs) his name was Kaiser Jäger Lieutenant Radinger. It's so beautiful. Uh, so they went over to war, made a friend, and came home again. And then he just hung out for a little I, while. I found a Reddit thread discussing this story where someone talked about their grandfather who had been in the Navy in World War Two, and they conquered a German ship and took a bunch of took the entire crew as prisoners of war. Uh, but because just like them, the German soldiers had just been conscripted into the army, weren't there for ideological reasons at all. They were all just basically being forced to fight against the will. They all bonded super hard and became best <laughs> friends and kept in touch for years after the war was over Aww. and had like reunions. That's which so is beautiful. nice. The time it's we... so nice. <laughs> I'm imagining the food like, and do you remember I got you in a headlock? <laughs> And you all just burst in with the guns. We were so afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There you go. That was nice. Um, It's really nice. The reason, as far as I can tell, uh, that uh, some sources say 58 men and some sources say 80 men is because 80 was uh, the entire army of Liechtenstein at the time. (laughs) That's an adorable army. (laughs) I mean, that's, I think, probably two-thirds of the men in <laughs> Liechtenstein. Um, but, uh, so, obviously, somebody has, like, so they, I don't know what those, like, was that 12, 22, 22 men decided, like, did while the other 58 went to war. But um, <laughs> admin, I guess. Um, yeah. But I think that that is why. They've um, just been benched. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know. Somebody's got to do the cleaning. My other good fact about Liechtenstein is that um, Vaduz is so teeny tiny that um, it's got a prison, but um, the prison doesn't have any real facilities. So just the nearest restaurant does all the food for it. Fair. Yeah. And there's only two restaurants. Make use of what you've got, I guess. Yeah. um, I find that charming. Okay. Our next question. uh, We've got a few. Uh, Is Daniel Potter speed round greeks versus babylonians versus egyptians versus romans who is the best uh see i this is i feel like my knowledge of these four peoples is not comparable so i don't feel comfortable making a ruling but i have always been a fan of the greeks Mm. and they seem so much more chill than the romans i know you disagree but romans are very angry whereas greeks just seem to relax a bit more Uh, i don't see i always think of the greeks as like the thing with the Greeks is that for all, pretty much all of Greek history, like they're little city states, and so every Greek is doing war. Whereas the Romans, after like two hundred ninety nine percent of them aren't doing, don't have to do any war at all. So they're just chilling, <laughs> living their urban lives, going to their disgusting baths, um, and you know, building an empire. Whereas the Greeks, like they're either farming climbing up an, a preposterous mountain to do some boating if you're in Athens, which is, I don't know if you've ever climbed the Pnyx, but it's stupidly high. Um, or <laughs> like digging up olives, climbing a mountain, or going to war. Those are the three things that they do. Um, also, uh, I have been playing recently a bit of, and I know we've already talked about Assassin's Creed, but I've been playing a bit of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is set in ancient Egypt. So I am pretty pro-Egyptian. Yeah right now also they were pretty good that is yeah and that's t- i know hardly anything about the babylonians except for um their kidnapping of all of the israelites jewish uh, ancient yeah jewish peoples that time uh, and their hanging gardens that's all i've really got so i don't really know where i rank them i mean they had a good empire um the problem with egyptians and romans like greeks basically talking about athenians babylonians that's like a self-contained like culture um but egyptians and romans like egyptians is three thousand years of history romans is 1500 years of history like it's tough to pick a one bit of that but in the end i studied all four of these undergraduate and uh, it was always the romans that had my heart unfortunately <laughs> Um, well, I'm going to stand by the Greeks, I think. Yeah, that's fair. Um, just for tension. Just, just for, for tension. tension. <laughs> yeah. uh, we can't all agree on everything. Uh, okay. We've got another uh, light, easy, breezy question next, though. Yeah, this is from Owen Monkey, which I forgot to write down, but um, <laughs> that's who it's from. Um, so, light, easy, breezy question, which we'll answer in two words. Do you think that anything that happens in human history is inevitable, or can we, as a thinking <laughs> species, create our own future? Uh, well, I have a library of books <laughs> that can answer this question. Um, the thing is, is that, and I feel like this is something that a lot of people I know are experiencing right now on a deeply existential level. Yes, is that no. We, I think we all feel like we should be able to control human history on an individual level, but that's not possible because we're just one person and 
if thousands and thousands of people think differently to you, there's not a lot you can do to change things. Yes. And we now live in a massive interconnected global world and everything is shaped by the interaction of so many economies and forces and social structures um, that have rules and not lives, but like they are much like a bureaucracy is basically an artificial intelligence like once you've got enough people following the rules then it becomes an intelligence of itself that is almost impossible for one person to change um yeah but also i think we often underestimate how to the extent to which things kind of happen organically just because everyone on mass is just kind of doing what's in front of them at that moment, trying to get through their own life. Yeah. Big changes are the result of those millions of individual efforts. And you can't do a lot to control individual efforts. My favorite sort of example of this is how angry people get about grammar and new <laughs> words and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Because language is a, is a completely organic beast that evolves on its own and that you can't control and the rules of grammar are actually there to describe how we speak rather than to rule it yeah so whenever you see someone losing their shit because someone on the internet has said small instead of small (laughs) that's just an example of someone desperate to control something that actually can't be controlled by anyone because it happens organically um yeah that's that's just how it works and you can't change it because it's spread across too many a vast number of individuals um that you can't control yeah and i think that um so this is like obviously the great question almost of what is history like for a long time we adhered to great man theory which has now become in all of those bloody like great women that change the world books um great woman theory of like the individual changes history that there is one that one person can change history just essentially through force of will so julius caesar and uh, augustus and genghis khan and that kind of thing um and now the vast majority of historians would say that you can't say that one person changed anything it had to be one person the right person in the right place at the right time doing the yeah. that specific thing changed With- history like a few other factors influencing what happened as well and yeah um and it was like like augustus was successful in ending the civil wars and creating the principate because essentially there was no one left to fight him um Mm -hmm. because he came at the end of 200 years of war and 100 years of civil war um (laughs) and he was able to end it because they were exhausted basically and like the social and cultural forces but also he had the personal skill and ability and imagination i guess like creativity to create something very new so it had to if it had been somebody else in that position then it would have been different and so he did Mm. create history in that way because nobody else would have done it like that um and he did manage to manipulate the 
Roman people just, <laughs> um, very yeah. well. And it is totally possible to manipulate behavior. Like, like we look now at all of this research into like a, like a while back when Facebook did that thing where they like um, manipulated people's feeds to see if they could change yeah. their moods and then change their behavior. Um, and you totally can like change behavior based mm-hmm. on what you show people. But you have to be, you can't kind of go against the grain, if you see what I mean. Like, you can shout forever at people using apostrophes wrong, but you can't can't push people into it. It has to be, the social cultural forces have to be on your side already. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, It's like there was, um, I've been listening to a podcast called In the Dark about a kidnapping mm-hmm. which is basically it was at the end of the 80s which was the decade of stranger danger but it was the yeah. one case that caught national interest to the extent that that's where um sex offender registries came from this one case oh. because it came after so many others or yeah. if you look at the me too movement that is the cresting of a wave that built yeah. for decades and owes its strength to the millions of women who spoke and weren't listened to until we got to this moment when suddenly they were and yeah. that's that's kind of how it ha- it's it's the slow changing of ideas and perceptions in individuals that spreads is how things change which is very amorphous and difficult to lock down it is very difficult to lock down but i mean i think technically as thinking beings we should be able to control history or control our future or control where history goes but at the same time there's so many of us that yeah yeah that's not easy that's the thing we live in an individualistic society but we are only one of billions so yeah that's the context of all of our decisions yeah um so that's an easy question yeah Uh, that's a nice little bit of easy breezy existentialism i don't know what makes me want (laughs) to lie awake for the rest of my life staring at the ceiling more the poo stick (laughs) or the fact that we can't control anything Uh, (laughs) Uh, yeah none Um, of it's great is it one more question (laughs) okay it's not it's not not great which is our last question let's do our last question okay this one comes from Connor Walsh um, from Ballymena High, uh, who asked, how dangerous actually was it to be a messenger from the phrase, don't kill the messenger, bringing bad news? So was it dangerous to actually be the bringer of bad news? Um, to which the answer to that is mostly, it was not that dangerous because in any situation with diplomacy or in war or in... Um, any situation where you would be the messenger like taking news saying the army is invading or everyone's dead um there were kind of honor codes that would prevent people from killing messengers um Mm -hmm. and generally if someone has killed a messenger then it is seen as a sign of being dishonorable or weak or uncivilized or deranged in and some way in some cases could actually cause a war yeah like if they're from the other side because they base yeah. like messengers from the other side basically have diplomatic immunity like if you kill a messenger from the other side then Which is, it's really like i mean it's a courtesy but also it's deeply practical because you can't yeah know what's going on without messengers exactly 
Um, and there are um, so there's the story in Plutarch of Tigranes um, when a messenger comes to him and says the opposition's armies are coming um, he chops off his head and then refuses to listen to anybody else saying that the other armies are coming he just kind of goes la 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 um, until the, the army is there thing. yeah <laughs> uh, and it's kind of a, a moralizing example of how you can't ignore that kind of thing and how killing your own messengers and not listening is dumb as shit um so generally unless they were particularly terrible leaders they it was not that dangerous to be a yeah. messenger um yeah. and it is it comes through like the phrase don't shoot the messenger or don't kill the messenger comes through Shakespeare and then got picked up by Freud and Freud wangs on about it as like a sign of it's an example of being of denial and denying the truth of the world and stuff um, which is how it gets into our lexicon I think really it's just an exaggeration of what does happen which is the bearer of bad news is often bears the brunt of someone's anger but that doesn't mean they get killed I think yeah there is a bit in um, Antigone to go back to some Greek drama where um, somebody says no one likes the bearer of bad news um, which is I think is more reasonable Uh, yeah or or at least certainly more true like no one's like oh great I'm glad you came I'm delighted to see you but I hate everything you've said to me yeah like no one likes that person but that doesn't mean that they would kill them them. yeah Yeah. Um, because that would be decidedly impractical it would be impractical and unchivalrous so when you get chivalry codes unchivalrous when you're in honor societies where a man's honor is all he has um then it's it's dishonorable and if you lose your honor you may as well just be dead yeah um unless you are in plutarch a deranged eastern king in which case you may as well just be dead um (laughs) basically the same as far as he's concerned <laughs> yeah but that's quite nice to know it's nice to know that messengers weren't getting killed it left is. right center um it is i don't know what kind of a job being a messenger was but i hope it was good yeah yeah anyway that's it that's all our questions that's us um if that was quite a lot though that was quite a lot i don't know if there were any we didn't manage to get to but if they'll be on the list for next time if so yes um and if you have questions, whether big or quick, you should send them to us. You can send them to us. You can send them to us at, at sexyhistorypod um, on Twitter or mm-hmm. sexyhistorypod at gmail.com on the email or on Facebook at sexyhistorypod without the E um, because that's, Facebook doesn't like they sex. won't let us have that. Um, so those, those are your options um, and we will <laughs> add them to the list um, or you can send them directly to us I am at Nuclear Teeth and I am at J9 and If and Oliver who will be back next fortnight um, is at Kiwa um, and our question for our next episode we're going to have another special guest Um because our question for next time is about the transition period after the Romans left Britain. Um, it's a question from Jack Dewars, which says, I'm fascinated by the transition period after the Romans left Britain, the, in extremely inverted commas, dark ages, because we don't say that <laughs> word. 
Um, the extent to which Romanized Britons kept up Roman life, how they coped with what must have been a devastating collapse of the existing order. I know enough about um, late antique and early medieval Britain to know that I don't know anything about it and that it is a highly complicated area because I did a lot of my PhD on that period in mainland Europe, continental Europe, and specifically avoided doing Britain because it's hard. So um, we have got Dr. James Harland, who did his PhD on early medieval Britain, um, and who is now a research fellow at the Universitat Tübingen to come and tell us the answers, uh, basically. And he will... Yeah, he's going to come and tell us all about what it was like in 4th and 5th and 6th century England. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, exciting times. Very good. Um, because it's a tough period of history, so that should be enlightening for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything about that period of history. I'm excited. See, so few people do, um, and it's partly because it's really complicated. <laughs> um, and as I say, I know precisely enough to know that... Um, it's kind of field of nettles that is tough to walk through so but uh james did his phd with one of my favorite early medievalists um so he's gonna be good yeah that should be okay good. i think that's it i think that is it yeah until next time janina yeah talk to you soon <laughs>